0: Book dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Seely
0: Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider what's it like to take a novel and translate it into another language? And on the flip side, what's it like to have your novel translated? Uh, this
1: was your idea, and I loved it. And I was so excited that we were actually able to find a novelist, a very successful book, and the translator to come on together and talk about it.
0: Yes, they were great sports about it. It was fantastic. Well, it was fantastic, but we should also mention the interview was fantastic. The technology, not so much because about five minutes into the interview, (laughs) my internet died. And so I ask about two questions and then I go away for the rest of the time. I know. And we missed you. (laughs) We missed you so much. And I kept trying and trying to get back in because it was a really interesting conversation. It was very sad, but we persevered. You did, and you
1: didn't need me at all. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. But we had, um, we did have an interesting conversation nonetheless, and so I hope everyone will enjoy it. Okay, let's talk about our guests. Romy Hausmann is a German author who lives with her family in Stuttgart, Germany. At the age of 24, she became chief editor at a film production company in Munich, and since the birth of her son, she has been working as a freelancer in television, Her thriller debut, Dear Child, became a number one bestseller in Germany, and it's being published in 20 countries, including here in the U.S.
0: And Jamie Bullock is a British historian and German-to-English translator. He's translated more than 30 books just in the past decade, including (laughs) Dear Child. He's the winner of the Schlegel... Oh my God, I'm going to have to pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do it? Let me try. He's the winner of the Schlegelteak Prize for German translation. His translations have been shortlisted for the Oxford Wiedenfeld Prize and the Crime Writers Association International Dagger. He's also the author of Karl Renner Austria, an account of the Austrian president's activities after two world wars. We started by asking Jamie how he became a translator.
2: I think like quite a few translators, my route into the business has been not a direct one. I did start off learning French and German and studying that as my undergraduate degree at university. Although I don't have any German background. I just like languages at school. Then I did a master's in Austrian history because I was particularly interested in that. And I ended up doing a PhD in Austrian history. And for several years, I was teaching German Austrian history at a variety of colleges, universities in and around London. When we had children, earning absolute peanuts wasn't really an option anymore. So I sort of fell back on my first degree, which was languages. My wife has been in publishing for many years, and I did a sample for her boss at the time. And he liked it. And that's how I got into it. But when did I become comfortable about sort of reading and writing in German? It took a long time, actually, I have to say. And it probably was doing my doctorate on Austrian history, where I spent three, four years reading German texts all day long, every day. I sort of got used to various rhythms of the German language. And of course, my vocabulary got much, much better.
0: Hmm. And how does a translator get paired with a book?
2: I think what happens is the world of sort of literature in translation is quite a small one here in the UK. As in the States, you know, we don't translate a huge amount of literature. Most of the stuff that gets published is written in English to begin with. So it's a small world, effectively. And you get to know... Most of the publishers quite quickly, uh, when I say publishers, the publishers who often take on literature in translation, some rarely touch it, others specialise in it. So in effect, word gets around. And the fact of being a translator means that you ought to be able to turn your hand to a variety of styles, a variety of voices, a variety of authors. So although it's possible that some people do specialise in certain areas, actually, as a translator, you like the variety. So you like to do a a crime novel one day, then a highly literary novel the next day, and then maybe a nonfiction book after that.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you ever turn down an assignment? Or conversely, do you ever seek one out that you've heard about? Uh,
2: (laughs) It's a very good question. I think as a freelancer, you really hate turning stuff down. You really hate turning stuff down. Because while I've been very lucky to have been in sort of permanent employment for the last few years, there may come a time, who knows, in a few years' time where it isn't there. Uh, I've been very lucky. I think only one book in the past have I had to turn down simply because I had too much work. Yes, I do seek out stuff. I'm also a member of a committee here in London called New Books in German. And we look at the newest stuff coming out being submitted by German publishers and then produce a brochure, which is now actually online. It's an electronic publication now, which is then sent out to all the publishers, not just in the UK, but in fact, around the world, showcasing the best new books published in Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And so therefore, I get a very early look at some of the things coming out. And then if I really like the idea of one of them, I can then try and pitch it to a particular publisher here.
1: I have found that people are often surprised to learn that authors and translators sometimes have no contact at all did the two of you work together on this and if so
3: how
2: no we didn't did we <laughs> no i think i think there were only often i'm in contact personally with authors it's usually just to clear up a few linguistic issues the fact that the actual publisher of this book the editor is german herself meant that there were certain linguistic things which i was able to put by her
1: right And Romy, what about your experiences with other translators of Dear Child into different languages? Did you connect with any of the translators? And were you consulted on any of their selection? Or is that always
3: just through agents or editors? Yeah, with some uh, translators I was connected. Um, the Finnish translator um, got in touch very, very often because um, for some German words, they have a lot of different meanings and he just wanted to be sure which one was the right word. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea what happened in Spain or in Croatia, they just did their job. I don't even know the names of the translators, which is a little sad because I think it's it's very exciting to know what they're doing. And I love to be in touch, but if they don't have any questions, the better.
1: Right, right. I had a book um, translated into Italian and the way I even found out was that a friend came across it in an Italian <laughs> bookstore. I, I didn't even know it had been translated, which is a
3: little sad. Yes, same here. Sometimes I I get some some packages from the postman, yeah, and he's bringing the boxes and and I I open them and then I say, oh, that's the Greek translation. Great. That's my book in Greek. Um, I didn't (laughs) know that. (laughs) That's crazy.
1: And in terms of choosing the translator, were you ever part of any of those
3: processes? No, I, I wasn't. But I've trusted the publishers and they choose them very, very well.
1: Right. If you had to guess, Romy... What would be the biggest challenge in translating Dear Child? And then then we're going to ask Jamie what
3: the actual biggest challenge was. That's a question I've always wanted to ask Jamie. I think um, Hannah's perspective um, would Mm. be the hardest part to translate.
2: Am I right? I think so. The uh, the perspective of Hannah, it's very interesting because when you first meet her in the book, she looks like a young girl. And sounds like a precocious young girl. You know, you have these different voices in the book, and it's important that the different registers come out in every language. You have to try and adapt your English and, you know, make sure that you can convincingly come across as a 12, 13 year old girl.
1: And then there are so many voices, right? So each one has to be distinguishable. I mean, I know just writing as a native. English speaker, it's hard to convey different voices. So it must be all the harder to try to get the same essence, but, but convey the rhythms of speech in a different language.
2: You're guided by the author, obviously, you have the text as such. But along with that, you have to also pass your own judgment. You know, so sometimes if you look at something, think, well, actually, in English, we wouldn't really say that, you know, especially with a crime novel, especially with a novel with great commercial potential like this one, you have to make the reader believe they're reading a text that was written in English in the first place. That's the illusion you're trying to create.
1: I know you've said in the past, sort of counterintuitively, that translating simple language can be harder than translating complicated passages, and that it can be particularly difficult to translate simple passages told from the perspective of a child. Can you say a little more about that?
2: Yes. It's got a lot to do with the different rhythms of languages. If you just forget the perspective of the child just for the moment, there are some novels that I've translated where you have in the German one simple sentence after another, after another, after another, and it sort of works. In German, it works. When you try and replicate that immediately in English somehow you look at it and think that's just not that's not authentic it's not authentic English and so therefore you have to sort of look at it again play around with it a bit maybe join up the sentences maybe you know fiddle around with the punctuation add the odd word in just to make it sound like a genuine English narrative um coming back to the perspective of the child are you talking now about what I said about the Birgit Funderbecker book is that Yes. Yes, yes. Now, that was a very short novella told from the perspective of a seven-year-old. And part of that book also goes back to her infancy. So effectively a time when a child cannot speak. And so therefore you have that added complication that uh, something's being expressed in language at a point in life when you don't have language, if you see what I mean. And so there's a tension there between what is being felt and experienced by this child and what is able to be expressed in words and from a translator's perspective somehow you've got to think it through and then try and sort of reproduce it i mean that's partly that's partly done by the way in which i go about my work is that i translate fairly fast to begin with so i take the text i go through it and i translate fast to try and create some sort of fluency then i put the original aside as much as possible. And then I go back and I edit slowly and I try to edit without reference to the original again. And it's only when I come across a sentence, I look at it and think, God, that that looks like utter rubbish. I, I didn't get that right at all. Only when I see that, then do I have to look back and think, oh, of course, yeah, I misunderstood that or I didn't do that correctly. So it's in that second phase of sort of engaging with the text as an English text rather than the original, that then you start to polish and you start to work on the style much more. Let's just take, for example, action scenes. In those, you almost have to try and capture the image of what's got the sort of film in your head of what's going on and then rewrite it. Because to try and follow the original closely often means you end up with a very wordy and not very good action sequence. Yeah you reimagine what's going on. So you look at it in your head and saying, so where's his right hand? Where's her body now? How What way is she twisted on the floor? Where's the dagger? You know, where's the gun? And by doing that, it enables you to rewrite it and to get the kind of life back in, to get the kind of urgency back into an action scene. And that's where moving away from the original really kind of helps.
1: Yeah. And what about the element of suspense? Does that raise a particular
2: challenge? can do. Yeah. Even in the language, you know, there are some times when, for example, and this happens not just in crime novels, where in the original, let's say in the German, you have half a sentence spoken and the rest remains unspoken. Now, because of the very nature of word order, the different word orders between German and English, you can't always say that half of the sentence in English. And you don't want to necessarily give away what's coming. So you've got to try and think very creatively about how to just write a few words that can be cut off halfway through without giving away something that isn't given away in the German. So that's just an example of how suspense sort of works.
0: I love hearing about people's work processes. So I have to ask you about your reaction to Jamie's description of how he goes about translating. Were you surprised by anything he said?
1: I was initially surprised, although uh, thinking back on it, it makes sense. I think it's fascinating that he does the first take really fast. And then for the second take, he doesn't really look to the original. I think that's so interesting. I do too. It really, I think, drives home a little bit how much of a role the translator ends up playing for good reason. I mean, you you have to have the final sound natural in the language of translation. And so that's going to require independent input to make it work.
0: Yeah. How did it make you feel about your own books? Because you've had books translated into languages you don't read.
1: I know. It is a little scary. It would be fascinating to have them translated back word for word, I think. You know, it's a weird feeling to know that there's this book out
0: there under your name that you can't really tell what it's... Yeah, that you kind of didn't write, right? Right, right. And you'll never really know. You know, it reminded me so much of my opera singing days, not actually singing opera because it's just different. You have input from directors and conductors, but singing art songs, singing German leader and French and Italian and English language art songs, because the process is so similar. First, I would just learn the notes until I really knew what the song was. But then you go and you drill down on the poetry because most of the songs, a lot of them are based on existing poems. And so you're really kind of excavating the poem. And then at the same time, you're really looking closely at what the piano is doing and what that adds to the interpretation. And then from doing that, I would be thinking literally moment by moment about how to express what I, as the singer, am thinking, but also what the narrator of the song is thinking, you know, the main character and what is their story. It it just felt really similar to me.
1: Yeah. Well, it is its own kind of translation. I mean,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I'm going to go to my American Idol days, not that I was on American (laughs) Idol, but when I was watching American Idol. And the best Right The best versions of songs were already, even when they were singing in their native language, the ones where they were best able to translate the feeling of the song. Yeah, well, I and actually said I'm talking about American Idol. <laughs> no, but I'm going to get right in there with you because one of my
0: favorite American Idol moments was Adam Lambert. What I loved is when they would take a song you know really well and do a completely different interpretation. And exactly. Adam Lambert did a version of what's that Bad song? Mad World. World. Thank you. You're welcome. I still remember it. I can see it in my mind. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Ah, good happy times okay back to the interview which at this point became a joint interview because Romy had as many questions for Jamie as you did I know it was fabulous let's
3: listen I have another question for Jamie because I've never really talked to him about his work <laughs> great <laughs> can I ask him is that okay of course by all means <laughs> Do you sometimes get to a point where you think, um, what was the author doing there? I would like to write it
2: differently. Mm. Oh, yeah. Occasionally. Occasionally, yeah. You know, as a translator, you really. It's such a different experience from reading a book. I read lots of books, but unfortunately, I'm the kind of reader who these days forgets so much of what I've read. Something I read a month ago, I find it really hard to remember what happened. But with the books I translate, I read them once in German and I go through them again in English. And you get so involved with all the characters, you know, that sometimes as you're writing, you think, well, really? Is that going to happen to them? No! Save them! Save them! Please, no! I want to change, to change, but I can't.
1: That's so funny. And it connects well to a question I wanted to ask, which is, you know, so often the people who are overseeing the translation, like editors and publishers and even sometimes authors, don't really have any way of judging the quality of your work because they don't speak the language that you're translating it into. So I guess it's a question for both of you. How does it make you feel, Jamie, to kind of know you couldn't probably make some changes and get away with it for a while at least? And how does
3: that loss of control make you feel, Romy? For me, it's quite okay because I, I just trust the translator, you know? I, I just trust them to understand what I wanted to say with my text. And I think that the publishers choose very well on, on the translators. so... I'm full of trust. <laughs> and they told about Jamie, they told me that he was really, really good.
1: And how about you, Jamie? How does it make you feel to know that so often your work won't be reviewed in that way?
2: Well, in the case of being a translator from German into English, well, sorry, that's wrong. Being a translator into English, in fact, It's much more likely that people will be able to pick you up on your translation. I mean, if I were translating into Korean, the chances of many people in Germany actually being able to gauge what I've written would be very slim. Now, generally speaking, they're not going to go through it line by line and say, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Theoretically, they could do. But also being a translator into English is a big responsibility because, of course, you're not just Translating for the UK, but you're translating for the US, you're translating for all the other English speaking countries. And not only that, potentially, you're also translating for some other countries that use your translation as a sort of midway point. It's not often known this, but occasionally some countries use the English translation to then create their own version rather than going back to the original. Interesting. Yeah.
1: That makes sense, actually. Um, I wanted to ask too about slang, translating slang. So often, slang has heavy regional connotations, and yeah. it reflects things like cultural background, heritage. Uh, for example, the American English word "aint." How do you go about translating slang like that, which is even regional within the language itself?
2: It's a very difficult one. Um, In some ways, it's getting a little bit easier because as individual languages are homogenizing through, well, originally through television and now through the Internet and social media and the fact that we're all watching the same things, the regional differences are becoming less. But it's always a very thorny point for translators. So let's say, for example, you had, and it does come up quite often, a character speaking dialect in German. Now, in the past, and I'm talking about way in the past now, some translators tried to replicate a certain dialect with a corresponding British dialect, which has some charm to it sometimes, but also it's fundamentally wrong because it's setting then that character in in somewhere completely different, which is really, you know, that's sort of not right. Generally speaking, the novels that I translate, most of the slang you get is urban slang. And you can tend to find an urban vernacular which relates to city life, which is not specific to one particular city. Do you get what I mean in English? So, you know, it's kind of youth speak or whatever. Yes. But that mm-hmm. sort of works. There's something more general, universal about that young person's speech. It isn't situated so regionally.
1: Yes. I'm often mocked by my children for not knowing the youth speak.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well luckily with my children, I have I have used my children so often. Right. Uh, translations. <laughs> one I did earlier on this year, I sat them down and quizzed them. I said, How do we do this? It was a fourteen of year old girl who was a character in one comic novel. It worked really well.
1: That's great. Um Romy, you have a background in film editing and of course moving from visual to text or text to visual is a kind of translation. What elements of filmmaking and visual storytelling do you think you brought to Dear Child?
3: I think it's been a good preparation to write because I got to know different characters. And when I did my shootings, I went to edit my films and and I know when to cut a scene, how to make it interesting, how to, yeah, keep up suspense. So I guess it was a good preparation for what I do now.
1: Yeah. Um, Jamie, I'm wondering too, what do you think are the most common mistakes that new translators make and what advice would you give to them?
2: Well, I always say that probably the most important quality a translator needs is confidence. You've got to be confident in the decisions you make. And the way I try to sort of explain this is by trying to give them a visual analogy. So say you're walking along a path and you have a chance to go either 90 degrees to the left or 90 degrees to the right, because the path separates. You want to go straight on, because that's what you want to do, but you can't. You've got to either go left or right. And that's what translation is like sometimes. you feel like you always want to go sort of the middle route, which seems to be the most sort of accurate way of doing something. But actually, a lot of the time, you have to make a decision which is more creative than literal and will end up being a far better decision to take Mm. than by trying to sort of shimmy along and go along with what the original text says. So you need that confidence to be able to say, I've taken this decision and I think it's a good one.
1: So I, I just want to ask what each of you is working on next or has in mind, if you don't mind sharing.
3: Well, I'm in the middle of a project. I've written two short stories um, during the lockdown in spring, and they got published this year. And uh, now I'm writing on my third thriller, which is quite exciting because it's going to be very, very different from Dear Child and the one I wrote after Dear Child. So it's very exciting for me. I'm Oh,
1: that's terrific. I'm excited too. And and Jamie, how about you?
2: Well, I've got a couple of things lined up in the next few months. So one's nonfiction, and it is effectively a life story about a Jewish refugee from Vienna who was quite a famous cook. And she set up a cooking school. And she was well known because she also published a cookbook in the 19, I think early 1930s, maybe late 1920s, early 1930s. And she escaped from Austria to the UK originally and then ended up in the US after the war. And one of the fascinating features of this book is that, and it's actually a kind of topic which is only just being really explored, is that her cookbook was so successful that after the um, takeover by the Nazis of Austria in March 1938, the publishers decided that the book was so successful they would continue publishing it, but under a different name.
1: Under a different author's name? or A different
2: name, a different author's name. And in fact, an author who we don't think existed at all. Ah. And the book was still published after the war for years and years and years and years. and There was no restitution, and nothing, nothing, nothing. And in fact, the publication of this book this year in Germany has now opened up this whole can of worms. And in fact, there were plenty of books. There were scientific books, there were other books, all published by prominent Jewish writers, which, as I said, were such big sellers that the publishers themselves, if they wanted to keep making profits, they decided to keep the books and change the names.
1: And they just pocketed the money for all of these years?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a total scandal. Total scandal.
1: That is an outrage.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you'll be hearing more about this, and the book should come out in 2022. So we've got a a little while to wait.
1: So they have a little time to clean up their act.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it certainly created a bit of a stir in the German and Austrian press in the last few weeks and months.
1: I wanted to ask, too, you mentioned earlier that you can't really... Say no that often to a book. And so there must be manuscripts you like less than others. Do you find as you translate them that you come to like them
2: more? Oh, absolutely. It's amazing how, when you read something for the second and the third time and you work on it, you really explore it in all its sort of gorgeous detail. And it's incredible what you can get out of a novel in particular when you're sort of mining it so slowly and then having to reproduce it in your own language. Hand on heart, I can say, I don't think I've translated anything yet that I've absolutely hated. I've translated a couple of things that have been really, really hard work, partly because the author is long dead and you can't ask them. Mm. But it's amazing how by working on a book, you really appreciate the craft and the artistry that goes into writing.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking it must make you a better writer to internalize all of that. Yeah. All right, then I'm going to become a translator. (laughs) Go for it. Yeah. Um, Romy, did you have any other
3: questions that you wanted to ask Jamie while we have him here? Yes, of course. When you go into a bookstore and um, you see a book that you've translated, do you feel like this is your book? Just like a writer has the right to see his book in a bookstore? Or do you have more distance?
2: No, I do. I really do. Obviously, I don't spend as long with each book as you would as a writer. But I feel it's a very intense relationship. For that period of time, you're actually working on it. You have that sort of afterlife with it as well. You know, you get it back from the editor, you get it back from the proofreader, and then you're involved in the marketing and everything. And you really feel very attached to it.
1: It was so fun to hear Romy's questions of Jamie. I got the sense that she came on the podcast in no small part because she wanted to listen to him. She wanted to know what he had to say about translating her work and other works. And I can relate to that. And I really appreciate that she she agreed to do that.
0: Oh, yeah. I loved listening to them. You know, this episode really gets at the heart of what authorship means, right? You have the writer, but then it's never just the writer. They're all, all of these people have input. You're writing a book and you give it to friends for feedback. You give it to your agent. Your agent has feedback. Editors have feedback. Sometimes marketing has feedback that you need to take into account. Mm -hmm. This is just to get it to market in the original language is a group effort. But of course the author has the final say, but then you bring in translators, which is a whole other level of interpretation. And then there are readers. So just because you put something on the page and you you have an idea in mind doesn't mean that's what the reader is going to take from it.
1: Right. It's so interesting because I, you know, I always think of writing as such a solitary process, just me in a room trying to fill a page with words. But you're right. At the end of the day, if there's some level of success, then it's a kind of a global, affair with lots and lots of different players. That's a fun way to think of it.
0: And I love the idea that the book is connecting all those different people.
1: Yeah. That is a very nice message for book dreams. I think so. And I think that's it for this episode of the book dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please, please please rate and review us on Apple
0: Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. It really helps. It really does. And be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Bullock, and you can see more about Romy's books on Twitter at hashtag Romy Hausmann.
1: Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at julie Sternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh,
0: listen to Book
2: Dreams with Julie and-